Hello and welcome to the Apostolic Church Liverpool podcast. We hope the message you're about to listen to will inspire you, will be a blessing to you and give you perspective in life. For more of such messages, you can visit our website at www.tac-lona.org.uk You can also access other messages and resources from our YouTube channel, The Apostolic Church Europe. We hope you're blessed and inspired by today's message. God bless you. Here's the message. Um, so we are officially launching into the respective chapter studies for the book of 1 Corinthians. Last week, Pastor has given us um, an overview and a sort of introduction into the book to give us the big picture and then different facilitators will be coming week in, week out to take us through that journey um, one after the other. As I was preparing for this, I, I stumbled on something an American preacher said about the city of Corinth that kind of helped me imagine in a more graphic details what that city must have looked like and the church during at the time when Paul was writing to them. The man said the, the city of Corinth is like a mixture of New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, if you are familiar with anything about those cities, you know, New York is this very expensive city to live in. Las Vegas is known for what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's the same city. Um, and Los Angeles, entertainment, Hollywood, that's their headquarters. Um, so when you bring all of that together, you begin to get a feel of of what um, the city of Corinth could could have looked like. Uh, I'm reminded of a TV series titled The American Gods. It kind of brings all of those kind of things together uh, in a sense. Okay, now present day um, context, of course here in the UK, I think London would be closest to that, except that um, I don't like to think of London so much as a sin city, but yeah, that's still the closest um, image that I can think of in a sense that would help us begin to think of what Corinth could have looked like in that time. <clears throat> it's probably the most licentious city that you would find in the Roman Empire, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century thereabouts. Um, and also a very wealthy city, a very expensive city to live in actually, with lots of idolatry and human philosophies. This is just by way of reminding us the different things that pastors said last week, and then we move into the outline. But three things that I wanted to point out that would set the tone for this chapter one that we are going to consider is to see the church in the three kinds of ways in which Paul sort of described them. It's a defiled church, defiled in the sense of there's just so much of immorality sexually and otherwise going on. There's drunkenness at communion of all things or of all places to be drunk. Um, there's licentiousness going on and all sorts of abominable things that we're going to be hearing of as we read on chapter by chapter. And then there is the issue of it not only being a church in which there's a lot of defilement, but a lot of division. Um, at least there are four different groups going by those who claim to be following one person or the other. Some are for Paul, some are for Apollos, some are for Peter. And some say, no, we are for none of the above. We are the true Christians. We are for Jesus. And even in claiming to be for Jesus, they yet form another part of the factions, if you understand that. And then when you bring those two images together, what you see is a church that is, in a sense, disgraceful. Disgraceful 
in terms of when you then look at the picture of what we see as the church in Corinth vis-a-vis -vis what the church of God is supposed to be globally, the body of Christ, it doesn't add up. And when, when a part of us, you know, I was saying uh, in the contribution a week or two ago, that we must also bear in mind that we are ambassadors of Christ to the, to the sense that whatever you do, you are not just doing it as you, especially when you bear the mark of being a Christian, you are doing it representing Christendom. You are doing it representing the Christian faith. You are, whether or not you admit or not, you are a representative of this expression of faith. And we need to bear that in mind because it has eternal consequences, what we do. Um, as Christians. Paul would later write to them in another letter in 2 Corinthians um, uh, that they are the letters of approval, epistles that people are reading as though to say whether or not the ministry of Paul is successful. But by larger implication, what that means actually, 2 Corinthians 3, I think verse 2, what that means really is that every single child of God, you are an open book. You are an expression of the gospel, if you will. People don't necessarily have to read the Bible, especially unbelievers, because they don't have to. Um, but they read you, and then maybe reading you can lead them to eventually reading the scriptures and coming to the faith, as the case may be in whatever order. So it's a disgraceful church or a disgraced church because instead of glorifying God as the bride of Christ is supposed to do, they are exactly doing the opposite of that. They are doing things that are just too disgraceful to mention as Christians. So in order to help them solve these problems, their defilement, their division, and their being a disgrace or disgraceful act, Paul began in chapter one by reminding them of their calling, um, their calling in Christ. And in doing that, he points out three major aspects of that calling, which we're going to look um, at. But first and foremost, I just want to throw out a, an open question. When we say the Christian's calling, which is the title we've given this chapter one, what comes to your mind? What's your understanding of that? We use a lot of Christianese or Christian lingo, one of them being this word, calling, 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 the calling or the called and, and things like that. But what comes to you? What does that mean to you when we talk about the Christian's calling? And don't worry about whether you are right or wrong. Just give expression to what you really do think about that phrase, what you think it means or what it means to you. Um, I would like if we could have a couple of contributions to that. If there are none, I'm going to call names. So volunteers would be better. Or maybe Bena is laughing because she thinks I'll call her or maybe because she wants to contribute. Maybe that's the push that you need. <laughs> anybody, anybody, anybody. The Christian's calling, what does that mean to you? Sister Ife, go on. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll come to you after Sister Ife. Sister Ife, go on. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So what I hear Christian calling, I, um, I think about mission. Um, I think about, um, it says, um, going into the world and um, preach the word of, preach the gospel of truth, preach Christ. So that's, that's what I think about calling. So like an invitation to an assignment to go and preach Christ. Yes. That's good. Okay. Ed Agbena. Yes. Um, 
uh, we believe that for for every life, mm. God has a purpose for every life. Mm. Every life has something he has to do. God has designed that this life we have to do this mm. and fulfill his uh, his uh, his um, purpose in the body of Christ. So uh, when one identifies that purpose for which God has made him. Uh-huh. And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit, through God seeking God's, God's, um, God's uh, uh, seeking God, what God wants him to do, and God revealing that to him. And that is his calling. That is his purpose, his purpose for being alive, his purpose for being in the in in the body of Christ to fulfill that which God has which God God has called him to do in the body of Christ. Mm. So that is his, that is that I would say is his calling. Thank you very much, sir. So it's tied innately to purpose, the purpose for which God has fashioned or made each of us. Thank you, sir. Pastor, you're about to say something. Yeah. I'm just going to just buttress it uh, because I think that's a very that's a very good question because I know also many people that if I was still talking to one yesterday uh, doing really well but he said God has called him and uh, so he's waiting to hear the the real call he wants confirmation all of that see the idea is that once you are born again you are called for those that he called. Once you are born again, the Bible says in Romans 1, 6, it said, including yourself who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So that's a, that's a generic calling on everybody. Uh-huh. Now, what does it call her into? First Timothy 2, 4. It said, uh, I mean, uh, yes. Uh, or Second Corinthians 5. It says, so if anyone in Christ uh, is a new creation, every old thing has passed away, see everything has become new, all this is from God who has reconciled us to himself and has now given us and has called us into the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the... No, you carry on and on and on and on and on and on. So that is what we are calling to. We are all calling to the ministry of reconciliation. So that way, we know that that is our first assignment. So we are not waiting for pastor or evangelist to go and do that. So we are actually actively doing that by the things we do, by our, our choices and our lifestyle. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you very much, sir. I think someone else wanted to say something. Maybe we can run, we can run that up by saying that the Christian calling totally mm-hmm. is having the mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. And what is the mind of Christ? Mind of humility, mind of love, love, I mean, love for variety. Of, you know, mind of, I always ask myself, what's the mind of Christ? What mind did Christ have? The grace of our Lord Jesus, the mind of grace, mind of love, of humility, meekness, you know, all that is associated, all that associates with the life and teaching and death and resurrection and, and even up there on the right hand side of the Father, still pleading for us and then coming back for us. All he did was for us. So having Christian calling is having the, the whole mind of God. Of Christ, it's like it's like growing in, into the statue of Jesus Christ, and that is what pleases God most. When you talk, when you go, when you go to the statue of His only Son, Jesus Christ, I mean, that, I think that is the entire that runs up the entire Christian calling. 
be meek, be humble, be, you know, go in God's way, stand in the gap, do whatever God has called you to do. There's a purpose for everyone, like the other said, and that calling, you know, make that calling, make it sure, you know, to make your calling an election sure. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Um, I think that those responses are... Yeah, sorry, Ed, I thought you can send the message here. Yeah. He okay. said, uh, Christian calling is PhD. Mm. And PhD means preach, healing, and deliverance. I like that. <laughs> because we have actually been talking about titles, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the right title, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, um... <clears throat> So in light of all of that, uh, that kind of sets the tone for what we want to discuss. You would remember when we started our series in the book of Jude as well, there was a time when we had to pause and answer or try to unpack what it means when Jude called his audience saints. And we said they are those who are called. And in talking about that, we said not just those who are called, but also those who have responded to that call in the sense that there's a generic call to everyone. God wants a family and he wants you and I to be a part of that family. We are created for the pleasures of God. Revelations 4.11, for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That's our ultimate call. And so as many as have responded to that calling, the language we use for them in Christianity is the called, the elect, the believers, Christians, saints, and all these other um, interesting languages. But we want to look at three aspects of that call in a generic sense. Every aspect that we've mentioned is valid is very is, and actually fits into this one way or the other. And um, whether we are talking about our call to being like Christ, having the mind of Christ, or the call to reconcile the world, or the call to evangelize and go and fulfill the Great Commission, they are all in different ways um, represented in these three aspects that Paul actually um, expounds upon in this in this introductory part of the book i like to always remind people because we tend sometimes to not pay much attention to it the fact that when the scriptures were written the original manuscripts there were no chapters there were no verses and so when we just come together like this to break things together we are trying to just look at um we are following a thematic theme in a sense and that's why sometimes you see us breaking um, one section in the middle of a chapter and saying another person will take another part from the middle of one chapter overlapping into another chapter and things like that. It's because we are trying to follow um, what would make sense topically and discuss it as such. Okay, so um, we're going to look at three aspects of the call for every Christian. We are called to be holy, we are called into fellowship, and we are called to glorify God. Call to holiness a call to fellowshipping with one another in the body of Christ, and then ultimately a call to glorify God. And this covers the whole of chapter one, actually. So the first nine verses, which we're going to use to drum on that point of our call to holiness. Um, I'm going to read those nine verses. I've chosen to use the New King James Version. You can as well read from any other version. I'm actually hoping that some of us have physical Bibles or of Bibles on your mobile phones open somewhere as well to journey along. Some of the verses that we might be citing might not be quoted on the screen. It would be good if you would look it up for yourself, like the Berean Christian state. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. We've unpacked that already. I don't need to double click on it. 
and Sosthenes, our brother, I don't know if I pronounced his name well, you will forgive me if I didn't. Verse two, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Right from Paul's introduction, you can always begin to have a feel of what he's about to do or what he's about to talk about or what he's getting at. Um, and there's just so much to unpack here, but I'll read through the passage and then we'll begin to touch on them as the Spirit of God allows us. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's signature greeting. When you see grace and peace in an epistle, you can almost be too sure that it was written by Paul. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. I'll pause. Um, I'm going to take verse 4 again and read from verse 4 to verse 9 at a stretch. I want you to, in a sense, suspend what you know about the Corinthian church that we have said from all our backgrounds and introduction, and just imagine the kind of church that you would have thought Corinth was if you read everything that was said in verses 4 to 9. Just imagine that Paul is writing to a church and is describing them in the language that he uses from verse 4 to verse 9. And we're going to compare that vis-a-vis -vis what we then know generally about the Corinthian church. So I'll go again to verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge. And verse 5 says, sorry, in all utterance and in all knowledge, verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gifts. In other words, you have all the gifts. You are eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is Paul introdu uh, Paul's introduction to this group of people. Reading that verse four to verse nine, does it give you any slight inkling that this is a church that is problematic? It gives you actually the picture of a church that is sound, a church that is solid. It says they are enriched in everything by Christ, in all utterance. They have all knowledge. They are so, the testimony of Christ is confirmed in them. They don't come short in any gifts. Talk about any gifts of the spirit, they have it. They are waiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they're anticipating the second coming. They are, they are eagerly waiting for that. Verse 8, they, they know that God, Jesus Christ, that has begun a good work in them, will confirm them to the end. They will be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are guaranteed and assured of their salvation. And verse 9, they are, it says, God is faithful, by whom you were also called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. But actually, this is Paul's way of beginning to attack the very first problem that we identified. Remember the three issues that we raised, that this is a church that is defiled. This is a church that is divided. This is a church that is disgraceful. But in approaching or attacking the very first issue of that defilement from his introduction, what Paul did was to approach it by showing them the picture of what God sees when he looks at the Corinthian church. Because this is a church, in spite of all their mess, as long as you're a child of God, you are in Christ. 
when God looks at you, what he sees is Christ. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, which pastor read a while ago, he that is in Christ is a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. Pastor, yes, sir. Okay, yeah, sorry, sir. I think I really like that point. That's really beautiful. You know, that also just summarized that phrase that Pastor just read before. You know, when I when we write word and write letter and write things every day and we just grace and peace, that's the summary of it. Mm. Grace first before peace. You can't have peace before grace. Now, that grace is telling you that in spite of all the things that is going to say later that they're they doing, the defilement, the disgrace within the past, they're going to be reading later. But the grace of God still abound on them, therefore, that give them peace. Mm -hmm. Because if you read that verse 9, you will see that there, which is also bouncing back to me now, that he is the one, it is his duty. And I look at myself as, say, in the educational world, they give me this kit, they're doing A-level, it is my duty to get them this grade. It's my duty. Even if they are misbehaving in uh, two, three years before the time, I will just make sure I do everything, call, their, call this, put them in detention, do, just make sure that by the end, being a good one, I will make sure they all get that grade. That's what makes me successful. So it is the duty of our Lord Jesus Christ to make sure that he that started that salvation in us will bring it to the end. That's why I say grace. Then in that grace, when you understand it, then peace comes. Amen. I like Glory. Thank you, sir. That's, that's... Sorry, Pastor. I have a quick question. Was yeah. verse 5 omitted on purpose? No, it was there, actually. So 4 and 5 are on. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you. You're welcome. I made the mistake when I was reading it out. So the, okay. the error is mine, not the slide. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> that's, that's, uh, that's how Paul begins. But again, everything that we've said, by the time we switch into verse 10 and we move to the rest of the chapter, you can as well forget what you read in verses 49, because then it begins to talk about the church that any human being that is looking at them sees. I mean, these are human beings. These are physical people. In spite of being in Christ, there is a lot of tension that is going on in their interrelationships with one another. The highlights, amongst other things, their defilement, their division, and their disgraceful acts. But this, what this says to us as a Christian then, before we jump into the next section, is to say who we are in Jesus Christ positionally should tell us who we are supposed to be practically. In other words, this picture that Paul is painting about perhaps arguably the most disgraceful church in the New Testament that we know about, it shows that no matter how bad that Christian might be, and of course, we, we said that we are saints. It's not even that we said the word of God says we are saints. The moment you genuinely and truly have placed your faith in Christ, you are saved and you are a saint and you will always be a saint. But then it's, it's getting that balance right to know that it doesn't just end here. Knowing that this is the precious thing that God has lavished upon me and upon every other believer should motivate us unto holiness. That's why we said this is a call to holiness. Who we are by virtue of being the righteousness of God because of a supernatural exchange that happened on the cross of Calvary should become who we are in practical living. We should actually be righteous, not only positionally, not only 
by virtue of that, I'm, I place my faith in Christ. I am the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21. It says that clearly that he that knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for you and for me so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. Again, that was a letter to the Corinthians, a later letter, of course, to them. Um, so who we are in Jesus Christ positionally ought to be what we practice in our daily life. And that's not to, to condemn you wherever you are on that journey. That's what sanctification is about. Till we are going to see him face to face, we'll be on that journey of progressively becoming like Jesus. But it is one thing to intentionally enroll yourself in that journey with that mentality and mindset. I want to, I want to finish today, 10th of June, 2021, more like Christ than I was on 9th of June, 2021. Of course, it's difficult for you to assess your progress, but you'll be able to look back in some years and discover when was the last time I reacted the way I used to react three years ago when something like this happens. That's when you will know that actually we are growing every day. Of course, there'll be rising and falling, but you are making progress. You are not where you were. You are not where you used to be even if you are not yet where you are supposed to be. So that lays a foundation for many of the things that um, we're going to be seeing. But in that passage that we read, I just want to zoom in into a few things that also further shows us the picture of who we are as the church. When we're saying the church, we know by now that we're not talking of any other thing than we ourselves um, by looking at what Paul says about the Corinthian church. The first is that the church is set apart by God. It says that in verse one to three, the, the church is set apart by God. And by that, you see him using words like saints, which we've again unpacked a number of times in our many other studies. A saint is someone who through faith in Jesus Christ had been set apart for God's special enjoyment and use. I like that emphasis on special enjoyment. God wants to enjoy you. That's why he made you. If you are looking for, why am I here? You are here to give God pleasure. That's one of the five purposes in the purpose-driven life that we read last year for those of us that journeyed through that together and that will bring some memories. You are here to give God pleasure. If God is looking at you and is not satisfied or pleased with what you're doing, then you are, you are not yet there. And you need to continue to trust his grace and mercy and empowerment for you to please him better. The interesting thing is he gives you all you need so that you can please him. He's not waiting on you to do it by yourself. It's not, it's not a joy kill that is just waiting to mark you down. It supplies you, supplies you with all that is requisite to life and godliness so that he can look at you and be pleased and say, this is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that also tells us that the church of God has got two addresses. There's a geographic address. Ben Grove, L80S0RY or HRZ. But there is also a spiritual address. We are all in Christ. That's our location. And since we are in Christ, we are far above all principalities and powers. All that is true about Christ is supposed to be true about us. And we can leverage on that in our place of prayer. We can leverage on that in our quest um, to become all that God is calling us or wanting us to become. The Christian belongs completely to Jesus. You are set apart for him. That, that's what it means that he owns you. He owns all of you. You belong to him and to him alone. 
But besides that, you are also then a part of a worldwide church. Because when we talk about the body of Christ, we're not just talking about one person. When we talk about the church, we're not talking about one person in as much as we say we are the church. The, the churchness of us is in our collectivity. It's not in our individualism. The church of God is not one person. The church of God is many people coming together as the body of Christ with the different gifts that he has given to each of those people and with the bond of love that brings us together um, in fellowship. Therefore, if a Christian is being defiled, if a Christian is, is being disgraceful, if a Christian is choosing division, that person is not only sinning against God, in actual fact, he's also sinning against his fellow Christians because he's misrepresenting the body collectively. Um, and we must, again, bear that in mind. The other thing is that he says that they are enriched by God's grace. I like that language. They are enriched. God enriches them. They are not lacking in any spiritual gift. And that's true of every child of God. It's not just um, an height for them to attain. Because we say we are in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And there is nothing lacking in Christ. All that we need for life and godliness is all in him. And so there is nothing lacking, really. And we can have access to all of those things that he wants to give to us. And then the fact that God has called us and set us apart and enriched us, therefore, should lead naturally to an encouragement, a motivation for us to want to live a life that pleases him, a life that is holy unto him. Another aspect of that call is that it says that they are expecting Jesus to return. In fact, eagerly, they are looking forward to it. You know, today we, we, we can look back at all these letters in the New Testament and say, these things are written almost 2,000 years ago. All of the letters in the New Testament were written in the first century AD. And here we are 2,021 years into almost probably about 2,000 years after that. And yet, Jesus has not come. But the good thing is the same scriptures, for instance, in Peter would tell you that there is a reason why God is delaying. And God is working according to, to his own timing, as it were, when he would bring all of this together to a climax. But our responsibility is we must always be looking forward to it. Bible says he will reward all that look forward to his appearing. We must look forward to his appearing. And Paul will dwell on this extensively in chapter 15. So there's no point to, to dwell too much on it now. We're going to fully unpack it when we get there. But the implication here is that Christians, as Christians who are looking for their savior, we should also want to keep our lives above reproach because you can't, you can't be looking forward to the day that results will be posted and not be motivated to prepare for the exam. Does that make sense? As a student, you are looking forward to graduation day. That's beautiful. But to look forward to graduation day is to ensure that you want to give your best in your dissertation, is to ensure that you want to do all the studying and end the title, be an authority in your field, be the PhD holder, be that doctor, even if you want to use the title as, as the case may be. But you are, you are doing what then makes what you are hoping for to, to be meaningful. There will be a difference between looking forward to graduation with a third class 
and looking forward to a graduation with distinction, perhaps with even something honorary happening on that day. You've been singled out amongst the crowd to say this one has done excellently well. You look forward to that kind of graduation in a, in a unique way. And that's the image here that as we're looking forward to Christ's coming, we know that he's not just coming to come and give us string gum <laughs> or ice cream or whatever it is that we might want. He's coming to judge amongst other things, to judge in the most gracious way, to judge in the most just way, to hand out rewards to his own people according to what we have done. And so that should be a motivation naturally for us. And then the church is depending on God's faithfulness. It says in that verse nine that God is faithful. He that has begun a good work, you can count on him that he will finish um, what he has started. He points to the assurance of their salvation and his eternal security in that, in that verse. And that again, is not a justification or an excuse for sin, but it is the basis or should be the foundation and motivation for a growing relationship of love, a relationship of trust, a relationship of obedience to Christ. Unfortunately, even though the Corinthians were elected by God, they were enriched, they were established, they were set apart and all these wonderful things that we've read about them. In practice, their lives or the the, their, their ways of doing church, to use a contemporary or urban term, is not in accord with their position of righteousness. It's not in accord with all these spiritually beautiful things that we've read about them. And before we judge them, we can as well look to ourselves. As I'm reading through this chapter, what keeps coming to my mind is this is a mirror of the church today. It's not just a first century Corinthian thing. All of those issues that they are writing to Paul to ask questions about for him to clarify and these other issues that he's trying to sort out, they are still the issues we are battling with in the church today. And when I say church, I'm not talking of TAC Liverpool. I'm talking of the church globally and the different local expressions of that anywhere and everywhere across the world. So this leads Paul into some longer verses where what we read in 4 to 9 would then be contrasted with what is actually going on on ground. This leads us to part two of our outline. Having mentioned the problem of defilement in the church, now Paul turns to the issue of division in that church. And in verse 13, he asks them three questions in the KJV. Um, some other versions have rewarded it into two questions or one. Um, but he asks them three important questions that would form the key to this long section of verses 10 to 25 that we're going to consider. But again, I'm going to read verse 10 to 25 and then try to just unpack some of the points that uh, the Lord will be drawing our attention to in that regard. Um, I'll be wrapping up in, in like 10 minutes, and then if there are questions and contributions, we can take that and move on to prayer. <clears throat> now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, for it has been declared to me concerning you, you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. Cephas is another word for Peter. I am of Christ, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Those are the three questions we're going to be zooming into. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. 
Oh, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. But besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other person. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Maybe I should quickly pause there to say, what Paul is saying here is not to, is not to invalidate the doctrine of baptism. Jesus himself gave the call, go ye into the world and baptize the nations um, as part of the great commission. But what he's saying here is that that's not the core of his calling. That's not what is, that's not his, you could say that's not his primary assignment. His primary assignment, before you can baptize someone, the person must have encountered the gospel and accepted it. That is his primary assignment. Let me focus on that and do that which he has called me to do. Then yeah, when people come in, others can baptize them. Jesus himself did not baptize anyone. Bible says in John chapter four, verse one to two, that he was baptizing more people than John, but not himself, he says in parentheses, but his disciples were doing it. And so it's common practice in those days that those that are like um, church authorities would have associates that would do the baptism. Peter did the same thing, Acts chapter 10, when he went to preach in Cornelius' house. Bible says he commanded them to be baptized. He himself did not do the baptizing. Apparently there are people that went there with him that could do that on their behalf. So Paul is saying here, not that, um, don't be baptized. I'm not called to baptize. Uh, any Christian should not be called to baptize. That's not his point. His point is that that is not my primary assignment. He did baptize some people, which he did mention, as we saw. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that became a stumbling block. To the Greeks, that was utter foolishness. Verse 24 and 25, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What I've read now in the New King James Version would sound even more grand if you read it in some more recent translations that puts it in very clear English, because in KJV, they are trying to stay very Fidel, or they are trying to maintain fidelity to the original manuscript in terms of every word for word in translating it. It kind of makes it a little bit tedious to understand. So I would urge you to check it out in a couple other translations at your, at your leisure. And you see the brilliance and beautiful arguments that Paul is making here. But those three questions in, in verse 13, you can remember that. I want to quickly zoom into that and see how far we can get with that. Is Christ divided? Remember, he said this immediately after he was trying to make the point that some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? To divide Christ is literally to take Christ and split him into different parts and distribute his spare parts. Even the imagery is unimaginable. And that's how we must detest the idea in terms of how it is manifesting amongst them, because that is exactly what they are doing even though they have not seen Christ to kill and slaughter and butcher, but by their actions. That is, the, 
That is the implication of what they are trying to do. And how did they get to this point? There are two ideas that um, emerge from what he was trying to say. You could see that in this section, he will go on to start talking about the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, comparing it with the wisdom of men. Because the Corinth is, is a city that is, again, in the Greco-Roman world of that time, there are lots of Greeks therein. And Greeks are known for, amongst other things, philosophy. They are intellectuals. They are intelligible. They are brilliant. Acts chapter 17, when Paul was going to engage and try to preach to them, you will see that even he himself had to move to another level of ingenuity by the spirit of God, of course, to find a way to communicate to them what he's trying to preach. Because these are people that are just so vast in philosophy. Some of those philosophies still rule the world today from the, the, the writings of the philosophers of that time. And so part of the practice in, in, in Greek philosophy is, amongst other things, who schools you um, kinds of adds weight to your credence, to your PhD or your, a PhD from UK and a PhD from a village in Nigeria sometimes are looked at at two different levels because they know that one person has undergone some more rigor than another setting where you can actually buy your way into getting the PhD anyway, even without necessarily doing as much tedious work as you would do. And so you see Paul sometimes, even as a Jewish person, boasting of the fact that he was taught by Gamaliel, because Gamaliel was one of the most respected of those days. And so it's out of that kind of ideology, perhaps, that some people are beginning to say, ah, who are you? When did you become a Christian? Me, I got baptized by Apostle Paul. A whole Apostle Paul baptized me. Another would say, yeah, that's Apostle Paul. But me, I got healed or baptized by Peter. I got baptized by Apollos, as the case may be. So I'm for this, I'm for that. And they are beginning to identify themselves by whoever baptized them or whoever led them to the faith or whoever's preaching style they have come to love. So instead of emphasizing the message, they are beginning to emphasize the messenger. And don't we see that in the church today, globally? The celebrity status, we, there was once upon a time that celebrities were people in the world. But today we have celebrities as well in the church. A, a, a man in, in the US that was just trying to, to play some fun as it were, and that became a big deal on Instagram. Started at some time to just be zooming in into, it will be spotting out some pastors in the United States and zooming into their shoes and take the pictures of that shoes go on Amazon to see the price and put the price of the shoes that the pastor is wearing and just post it to say, just, just for your information. It was just supposed to be a fun thing, but then people started double clicking on that to say, what's going on here with the whole prosperity thing and the whole celebrity status of different ministers. When you are preaching and you're wearing something that is worth thousands of pounds or thousands of, of dollars, when there are members in your congregation that probably haven't even eaten or couldn't afford to pay their rent and things like that. And all those kind of questions and issues, uh, we are seeing that in the church today. So that is part of what is going on um, in the Corinthian church. Again, um, it's sinful, basically, by implication for us. It's sinful for church members to compare pastors or become disciples of men rather than disciples of Jesus Christ. Come meet your mom. Sorry, just a minute. Thank you. <clears throat> it's sinful for church members to compare pastors or to become disciples of men rather than disciples of Jesus. 
who alone must have the preeminence. That's the message of Colossians. Christ must have preeminence. If it is not about Christ, we've lost it, wherever that is in the body of Christ. If it is not about him, that expression of Christianity has lost it. So Paul, Apollos, or Peter, they are all wonderful ministers of God in their respective rights. They all are different personalities, different strengths, different greetings, uh, uh, giftings, and different approaches to how they do ministry. But yet, they are one, as we're going to see in chapter three, when Paul will really, really um, dwell on this issue of division that is going on amongst them. I think I'll pause there um, on that first question. There are two more questions about baptism and, and, and did I die for you, um, crucifixion, that Paul would ask in that sense. But let me pause here and just throw it open to say, is there any question um, or any issue that you want to emphasize or drum or more or some remarks that you might want to pass? Anybody? And then we'll wrap up and I'll call on Brapita to lead us in prayer. Any question, any contribution? We are very quiet. Oh, you want me to ask a question? <laughs> okay, um, as we wrap up, I'll throw this question out and just see what we think about it. Actually, the word fellowship, fellowship, we say it all the time, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But fellowship, is especially in the sense of we fellowshipping together, what does that mean to us? I just want different sides to that that can even help us further to have a hang on what it means when we are talking about fellowship, Christian fellowship, Christian fellowship. What does that mean to you? Anybody? Christian fellowship. Oh, what fellowship. Oh, what joy divine. What does that mean? Fellowship. I think for me, it would mean experiencing life together to the point that I can stop over at your house or give you a phone call to say, oh, this is what I'm going through. Like just living, just not being close, not being close friends with church members, but having this life experience together. And because the more we listen to God's word, it's not just for us to hear and just be cool and not talk about it in church and just take it as it is is to share the impact of the things we've heard on our lives. And if we don't speak about it, so how is it affecting us? How is it impacting us? Do we keep hearing um, books upon books of the Bible, Romans, Ephesians, um, Corinthians, without anything being, the, what is it doing to us practically? So I, I feel fellowship is that talking part and that sharing part. Thank you. Thank you, that's a good perspective. Any other thoughts on that fellowship? Fellowship, fellowship. We have just two more minutes. Um, praise the Lord. I would um, come yeah. from um, because we uh, we read it uh, um, in Purpose Driven Life when it talks so much about fellowship, being genuine, and being genuine uh, in fellowship is as Sister said, every single thing. If you see someone do something wrong or something that it's not um, appealing, that you don't just keep it to yourself. You should correct in love, call the person in love, speak to the person, um, find like um, share things together, 
share moments, both the happy times, both the sad times, both the difficult ones, share everything together. So as the, I was trying to look for the Bible verse and Acts when the way the church in Acts was. So from that, that's um, that's my contribution. One more contribution, hopefully from a man, apart from Pastor, and then Pastor. Will the Lord. Hallelujah. Go on, Deacon. Um, I like uh, the the word that Johnson Oyekon used in his song. Uh, he 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 referred to fellowship as tete a tete, mm. and you would talk heart to heart. Mm. Um, the mind of God, and you also discuss it with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit discuss the mind of God to you. You also you listen and you take it into uh, into action, and you also relate with Him. Mm. It's it's that fellowship. I mean, it's just that. That togetherness, sharing, I mean, knowing everything about God and God also discussing with you. You know, the, the kind of relationship he had with Moses, where he could tell him anything and everything. We, we can as well reach to that level. God help us all. Amen. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I like that. We got both sides of that word, our fellowshiping with God and the Spirit and then our fellowshiping with one another. And I think the, the interaction we have with God, our fellowshiping with God, which is totally based on his love, should rub or define how we then go on to fellowship with one another. So if I won't be shy to tell God what I'm going through or express my grief or my sadness or my joy as the case may be, I shouldn't feel shy to do the same to a fellow brother or to a fellow sister. Um, or to, if I'll go to God and make requests for strength or for encouragement or for grace, I can do that as well in, in meeting my fellow brother to say, just hold me up in prayers in this regard. Uh, this is what I'm going through and things like that. But all of them based on love. I remember the time the Holy Spirit gave me that definition of fellowship is in the context of woman to woman, fellows together in the ship of God's love. We are all in that ship. We know that the ship is headed towards the haven of glory. But while we are on that ship, we are treating ourselves as fellows. But what binds us together actually is that ship of God's love. And we continue to relate as such with one another. I'll hand over to Pastor for final remarks and then Bro Peter will lead us in the prayers. Pastor, so you are muted. Sorry, sorry. Now the word fellowship itself means is if you take away the Christian away, fellowship itself is just a generic word, which means the the community of interest. Uh, yeah, the community of interest. It means uh, an interest group. So you can have fellowship of this group, fellowship of that group, fellowship of but a fellowship also also make koinonia. So they will now put Christian fellowship, just like Pastor said, that Christians are those that are in Christ. Mm -hmm. So the community of interest of those that are in Christ. And like we all said, like we said, this is where we now share our personal things, what we can share together to help one another in the journey of sanctification as we go through that process. So, what are the things we can look together and think, okay, what is your take on this area? Then, like, that is when we now say the deep now connect to the deep. We now help each other 
in a way, uh, just like the Bible says, iron sharpened iron. Okay, right. Okay.